You're listening to Season 8 of Bionic Planet, now brought to you by Vera, the world's most widely followed environmental standard, and by Responsible Alpha, a collaborative high-impact ESG consultancy helping investors, businesses, and communities transition to a low-carbon, sustainable, and equitable future. This episode is also made possible with support from Conservation International. Sponsors do not participate in the production of Bionic Planet. It's midday on the eastern coast of Kenya, along the Indian Ocean, and it's 90 degrees in the shade, Fahrenheit that is, or about 32 degrees Celsius, and humid, muggy, the kind of humid that sucks the life out of you, like a steam bath rolling in from the sea and out across 250 kilometers of dusty plains before hitting the eastern slopes of the Chilu Hills, an active volcano along the Tanzanian border north of snow-capped Kilimanjaro. As the air hits the lower slopes of the Chilu Hills, it's guided up more than 2,000 meters, where it cools into a thick mist that enshrouds the higher elevations like something from a fairy tale. This is the cloud forest of the Chulu Hills. Cloud forests account for just 1% of the world's forest area, but they support massive natural ecosystems that provide drinking water for millions of people by capturing water from the sky and delivering it to people below, usually via rivers and streams. This one infuses the water into the porous volcanic rock, which acts as what geologists call a natural water tower. The water percolates down through the hills, then out through springs that become rivers supporting the Savo and Amboseli Plains, where Maasai pastoralists graze their cattle and all the big five roam, elephants, lions, leopards, buffalo, and rhinos. The Chilu Hills also provide water for the coastal city of Mombasa, where much of that human air crossed in from the sea. The Chilu Water Tower has served the basin reliably for hundreds of years, but that started to change about a half century ago, when population growth led to more intensive and less sustainable grazing. Some pastoralists abandoned their herds and started farming in place, which depleted both the soil and the water, driving people from the plains up into the hills where they chopped trees for wood and burned them, either for charcoal or in controlled burns that often became uncontrolled forest fires, degrading the cloud forest depleting the water system. The government did take action, most prominently by gazetting a national park in 1983. But conditions outside the park continued to deteriorate, and by the time Victoria Musioka was born, the region was in a state of ecological crisis. The area was so dry, mm -hmm. and the, ra the rains were so scarce. Outside the park, the Forestry and Wildlife Services teamed up with environmental NGOs, the Maasai Wilderness Conservation Trust, the Big Life Foundation, the Sheldrake Wildlife Trust, and Conservation International. And, most importantly, grazing collectives called community group ranches to help pastoralists across the region shift to regenerative grazing, which works by diversifying the herds and then carefully managing where and when they graze. It's a time-tested, proven way of restoring soil instead of degrading it but it's also labor-intensive. The different organizations also built up ecotourism businesses, and the NGOs brought philanthropic funding to the table. 
By the late 2000s, these organizations, governmental, non-governmental, and societal, were providing jobs and training for more than 20,000 people from the Maasai, Kamba, and other communities in and around the hills. More importantly, they were doing so in ways that both restored degraded lands and tested new approaches, providing a clear record of what works and what doesn't. The initiative was an unqualified success, but it wasn't a huge one, for while these various approaches delivered results where deployed, there wasn't nearly enough money to deploy them across the region. As a result, the forest continued to shrink, the rivers continued to shrivel, and desperation continued to rise, leading to more burning, more poaching, and more degradation. This all came to a head in 2009, when a massive drought sent many farmers over the edge, forcing more of them into the hills as the springs dried to a trickle, pushing millions of people to the brink of famine and leaving tens of thousands of livestock and wildlife dead. By then, it was clear these efforts needed to get a lot bigger, a lot faster. But how? The answer came in the form of a new financing tool that regular listeners know well, Red Plus, which stands for Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Degradation Plus Enhancing Carbon Stocks. Red Plus finances conservation by paying for activities that save endangered forests, which keeps carbon dioxide from entering the atmosphere. That's the reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation, or the red part. Red Plus finances restoration by paying for activities that enhance carbon stocks, such as afforestation, reforestation, and climate-smart agriculture, which remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. By the time Red Plus showed up, the organizations had been working together for well over a decade, and they created a common trust called the Chulu Hills Conservation Trust to develop what we now call the Chulu Hills Red Plus Project, a 30-year private-public partnership designed to save the cloud forest atop the Chulu Hills by overhauling the rural economy below them. The first step was to ask people in the communities what they'd need from the project to stop the burning and the destruction of the forest and shift instead to protecting and nurturing it. The answers were clear. Build us schools, they said. Provide scholarships and bursaries for our children and help us find a way to make a living without destroying the forest. Ten years on, sustainable businesses such as beekeeping and tree nurseries are thriving, says Evans Maneno of the Kenyan Forestry Service. The general livelihood situation has greatly improved. In addition, the way the old ladies in the tree nursery and my staff in the nursery have already indicated, we are also enjoying this enhanced water flow. For the people of the plains, the benefits are obvious. Nowadays, we have seen so much changes. It's green, and then there it's so, it's so clear and it's so fresh. If the Red Plus project goes on, I think in years to come, the area will be talking something else. It will be so be nice for mm -hmm. for the people. So and we'll never talk about people getting to that hill again. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, 
and we know it's ugly face, we should put a big fat price on it. And of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth, we broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we address it by seeing how NGOs and government agencies are leveraging carbon finance to help the people of Kenya's Chulu Hills shift to sustainable land management. In this, the first of at least two installments from the Chulu Hills, we'll examine the whys. Why are the hills in trouble? Why is traditional philanthropy not enough? And why did the people turn to Red Plus? In later episodes, we'll visit the people doing the actual work on the ground, so you can get a feel for the what's and the how's as well. We'll start with David Okul, who is the conservation manager for the Maasai Wilderness Conservation Trust. That's the partner organization that features most prominently in today's episode. It's clear, however, from my short visit that this is a coordinated effort, with each organization bringing its own unique set of skills and resources to the table. I started by asking David, what makes the Chulu Hills so valuable? It's a water tower, mm-hmm. and we don't have many rivers that drain the water from there because of, of the lava rocks. They're quite porous, so the, you cannot have rivers flow. Okay. So you find that it's from the Chulu Hills that most of these springs come up. And that gets to the heart of these episodes and a theme we've returned to over and over again. We need water to live, but we need healthy ecosystems to get water and air and a stable climate. The basis of life is actually in forestry. Most people say it's water, but when you really think about it, most water sources actually come from forestry. So it might be the chicken and egg thing, but it starts from forestry, then it goes to other biomes and other systems. The savanna to the west of the Chulus is one of those biomes. The Maasai have been grazing their cattle here for centuries. The Maasai communities have been pastoralists, but then climate change came in. Agnes Delante grew up here, and she saw firsthand how development and migration brought slash-and-burn agriculture that clears forests for farms in the short term, but degrades soil in the long term. And there were so many negative impacts that were being experienced in the local communities in terms of unpredictable weather patterns. The droughts were really long and this affected the people. As I mentioned earlier, the government gazetted the National Park in 1983, and that saved the hills for a time. But what happens outside a protected area almost always impacts the inside. As unplanned agriculture took its toll in the surrounding area, fires were hitting the hills, along with poaching and the chopping of trees for charcoal. By the early 1900s, the government intervened again, this time with regulatory actions and law enforcement evicting people from the Chulu Hills and relocating them to Masangalani, about 30 kilometers away. By 1992, the government of Kenya evicted them and they were placed down at Masangalani to uh, give way for the animals and uh, trees to grow well because they had caused a lot of damages on failing trees, burning uh, fire, burning the whole bush. 
Sunny Motu is a retired school teacher who now leads one of the community groups participating in the project. He says those regulatory efforts came up short because they didn't address the underlying economic drivers of deforestation. People have been affected by the Kenyan government. There are challenges because we have got some radicals or, or people moving down up, in, up and down at the uh, slopes of the Cholo Hills, cutting mm -hmm. grass, cutting uh, trees and destroying even uh, poaching. Kenya wasn't the only country struggling with the regulatory approach back then. Most forest nations were facing the same problems, but a few, like Costa Rica, began experimenting with payments for ecosystem services, a concept we've covered extensively on Bionic Planet, including on episode 56, which included an interview with Costa Rica's former Minister of Energy and Environment, Carlos Manuel Rodriguez. Luca Belpietro founded the Maasai Wilderness Conservation Trust, but he was still in college when all this was going on, studying economics. This was 1992, and my thesis was on wildlife as a natural source in Kenya, sustainable development and environment conservation. The premise will be familiar to regular listeners. Unless we create economic models that can sustainably create a profitable use and sustainable use of natural resources, we're going to fail. After earning his PhD, Bel Pietro left the ivory tower for the water tower. He started working with community group ranches that were looking to augment their agricultural activities with ecotourism. Engage the local community of Kuku Group Ranch in a naive way where we first created an eco lodge, Campia Kanzi, and again, naively, we thought maybe tourism will be enough. We employed locally for the building, we employed locally for the running, which was not easy. It took more money and more time. Mm -hmm. But our mission was not to have the highest profit. Our mission was to have these conservation dividends. And it proved to be a, a very successful operation. We were solar since day one, but it was definitely inadequate to address all the needs that the community had. And so we created Maasai Wilderness Conservation Trust. Ecologists support conservation by turning it into something that pays the bills, an income source, instead of something that interferes with those bill-paying activities by stifling agriculture. That's the ultimate goal, to create a system that finances nature by recognizing its value rather than just asking for donations, which depend completely on the generosity of others and has proven unreliable at scale. For that reason, even the Trust's donor-driven initiatives have tended to use economic models in an effort to align economy with ecology in the region. Wildlife Pays, for example, is one initiative that emerged early on, after farmers said they were forced to kill endangered predators that ate their livestock. Although killing endangered species is illegal, farmers argued they shouldn't be forced to bear the cost of conserving endangered wildlife. In response, the Trust found donors to support a system of compensation payments for livestock lost to predators. But a key part of that program is that payments would only come if farmers agreed to stop killing the lions, leopards, and jackals that were eating their livestock. The interventions worked, but while the Echo Lodge covered its own costs, the other initiatives, from wildlife pays to workshops and regenerative grazing, were completely dependent on the generosity of donors. And there's just not enough generosity in this world to reach the scale needed to meet the climate challenge. Then came the drought I alluded to earlier. 
2009 there was a serious drought and a huge number of livestock was lost and after that people had to think about alternative sources of livelihood and the the canese casualty mm-hmm. or the <laughs> vegetation but was actually wetlands mm-hmm. wetlands are the bogs swamps and other systems that filter water control erosion and provide a home for at least one third of all the planet's threatened and endangered species I covered wetlands in detail in episode 42 back in 2019. You find that people like especially people from other communities are who are not Maasai. They came and asked people, "Why are you dying from hunger and you have good wetlands here? We can do farming." And people from outside were telling to the Maasai, "Hey guys, why do you put all your eggs in one basket? Mm-hmm. All you care is about is livestock. Mm-hmm. And the moment you have just livestock, if you have a drought, the livestock will die. But you have beautiful springs." Why don't we come in and farm them for you? Mm-hmm. We will farm and pay you a lease. Most of the time the lease is not paid because if they don't have a crop they will claim oh I don't have the money etc. So the Maasai are getting very little out of it. But the massive pumping out of water impacted the water table here. 9 out of 10 of these hand pump operated borehole in the village dried up. Mm-hmm. The only source of water that we had was a borehole that we did for the school and the dispensary and we created a conservancy we stopped the farming and immediately the water table came up the use of pesticides was terrible 5 months ago a masai girl of 9 years died of cancer never seen anything like that before and so no agriculture done in this very disruptive way is not a way to support this community there are better uses of this land that doesn't have permanent source of water beside few springs that needs to support wildlife as much as everything else and planned and on a sustainable farming proliferated in the area and this had severe effects not only to the environment even to health we had increases cases of things like cancer and all sorts of things when you said cancer started increasing what caused that We speculate it's the pesticides that were used mainly ah. in, the, in the agricultural areas. It, it's not something that was there before. This is the change that has happened. Pesticides are coming up. There are no pesticides in the area and such kind of things. So maybe that, that could have caused it. But it's, as I said, it's anecdotal and it's speculation. Nobody has done any research. Right, no right. hard science behind it. Okay. And you mentioned that they drained the wetlands as well. Yeah, there are wetlands and other partners in the region saw that this was a real threat to the especially wetlands and even not only wetlands even forested ecosystem because charcoaling went up and all all other things charcoaling means chopping trees to make charcoal it's one of the many unsustainable activities that the chulu hills red plus project was created to end in part by helping people start up beekeeping businesses which provide the ecosystem service of pollination and the income of honey making the project also helped the forestry service expand its tree nurseries in the hills as we'll see in our next episode and of course there was the regenerative grazing that i alluded to earlier we know pastoralism is quite compatible with, with conservation because after all where wildlife thrives you find that people mainly practice pastoralism especially mm-hmm. in kenya and in africa so at this point the partners all knew exactly what they needed to do but they didn't know how to finance it that's when luca heard about red plus i heard about carbon credits by simply reading about them uh uh-huh. I then started digging in to see who was really successful in bringing a project to fruition. 
we saw failures that mm -hmm. were important to see and learn from. And we partner with Conservation International with the idea of developing this project. The two masterminder were myself and Edward Norton. Edward Norton happens to be an actor, but he mm -hmm. happens to be UN ambassador for biodiversity. He's an incredible conservationist, has been my partner for the last 20 years. Without okay. him, we would not be where we are. And Edward and I, he was on the board of Conservation International, thought, why don't we look deeper into these? And uh, Conservation International did it. It's not really us. They really assisted us in everything. We use a consultant here in Kenya called Wildlife Works. But then we became the early the forerunner. Maybe not everybody's familiar with these carbon credits called Red Stance or Reduction of Emission for Deforestation and Degradation of Forest. Mm -hmm. So you're actually paid for something that didn't happen. The assumption is if we do nothing, this forest will be gone in a number of decades. And if we do something, it will be there. And because 15 to 20% of the carbon emission in a year are due to deforestation, if we could magically stop all the deforestation tomorrow, we'd cut carbon emission globally by 20%. That's, mm -hmm. that's not a small reduction. Right. So I am very proud of RED and it's terribly misunderstood because mm -hmm. it seems, oh, you, you paid for something that didn't happen. Oh, you're not paid to... Uh, plant trees and pay to make sure that forest doesn't become an arid field. And that's yeah. very important because it's happening as we talk. This Red Plus project, from what I heard, that was some of the things that made people think about. And I think Red was starting out because I think Red as a concept started in around 2007. Mm -hmm. So it was a new concept that's picking up and the organization saw that we have the resources in terms of cloud forest, lava forests and um, woodlands that mm -hmm. are significant enough. So they thought that maybe if we, if we can have this payment for ecosystem services within the area, it can help reduce that impact. Yeah, And so I think the project started in 2011 when they started doing the paperwork and such kind of things. Yeah. The paperwork he's alluding to isn't just forms to fill out. It's a massive research project conducted under recognized carbon methodologies which are stepwise approaches, like recipes, for mixing together ingredients. Those ingredients being existing statistical models and scenario analyses to estimate the risk of deforestation in areas under prevailing conditions. I know that's a mouthful, but I can only simplify so much in each episode. I'm producing these at an average cost of less than $2,000 per episode, which puts my hourly pay below what I got even ushering at the ballparks back in the 1980s. I couldn't do this without my sponsors, Vera, Responsible Alpha, and Conservation International. But I also need help to scale this up and do it right. If you want more and better episodes, you can help me deliver them by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. There you can support me for as little as a buck an episode and with a monthly cap. The address again is patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash bionicplanet. Also, if you're an ethical business looking to reach a global audience, you can advertise on Bionic Planet or become a sponsor as well. You can reach out to me at steve at bionic-planet.com. Finally, you can help just by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. That helps because the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds we can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. Getting back to the topic of methodologies, I discussed the process of developing a methodology in episode 81 called, appropriately enough, How to Build a Methodology. 
And we'll be revisiting that theme a lot in the coming months, as well as the process of developing a project. For now, you just need to know that the first step in developing the Chulu Hills Red Plus project was to document the deforestation that had already taken place in the region. And the second step was to see how that deforestation had played out in areas most similar to the areas that the trust wanted to protect. This meant they had to find areas nearby with the same soils, slopes, plants, and people as the project area, but where the damage had already been done. Then use something called land change modeling to project the deforestation risk in the project area. Now, in this case, that wasn't too difficult because the population started increasing in the 1970s, forcing all of the changes I've already described. The U.S. Space Agency, NASA, started providing high-resolution satellite images of the changing landscape in 1984. You may recall from episode 82, called Every Tree on the Planet Mapped, that satellite technology back then was rudimentary by today's standards, but the images were detailed enough to document changes over time, especially when blended with the documentation and input from local communities. By 2010, the changes across the landscape were well documented, as was the impact of activities the partners wanted to expand. Using methodologies developed under the verified carbon standard, technicians filtered out towns and areas with low data, as well as so-called problem points that exaggerated rates of deforestation. After then rounding down for uncertainty, they had an estimate of deforestation risk that passed muster with third-party auditors. It's obviously a lot more tedious than this, but the gist is the partners had a conservative estimate of what would happen if things continued as they already were, and this provided a baseline rate of deforestation that would define their success under carbon accounting. If they could implement activities that made it possible for them to beat the baseline, they could cover their costs with carbon credits. Now, the final part of today's show is just me and Luca Belpietro, who will explain a bit more about how the project got started. As with every project I've visited, there is just so much more than I can possibly cover on this show, because this kind of reporting and production takes a lot more time and money than I currently have. So let me reiterate again, if you want more and better episodes, you can help me deliver them by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash bionic planet. There you can support me for as little as a buck an episode and with a monthly cap. The address again is patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. Also, if you're an ethical business looking to reach a global audience, you can advertise on Bionic Planet or become a sponsor as well. You can reach out to me at steve at bionic-planet.com. That, by the way, is how Conservation International became a sponsor, so you'll be in good company. Finally, you can help just by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. That helps, because the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds we can reach. And we must reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. Now on to my interview with Luca Belpietro of the Maasai Wilderness Conservation Trust. What were the gaps that still existed that made you go go the red route? I I 
wouldn't even call it a gap. It was a crisis. It's unsustainable to raise $2.5 million to run Maasai Wilderness Conservation Trust out of the generosity of our supporters. Mm. And so for us, it was an emergency. We were protecting these forests without getting any support from anybody uh -huh. beside the people that we were fundraising to. Mm -hmm. And we were saying, hey, we're not going to knock on your door forever. Mm -hmm. We are doing these and we think that we will be able to walk on our own legs. And so it wasn't a gap. It was a crisis. Yeah. And we were very uh, lucky to have very generous people who believed in our strategy and supported and are still supporting us because the carbon is not yet enough to cover for all the expenses to protect these one million acres land. Can you talk a bit about the specific activities that you're doing. I know you've got beekeeping and microfinance, tree nurseries, um, other businesses to replace charcoal and timber, but I haven't been to the Maasai side. I did talk to one of the Maasai rangers. I know you're helping them with sustainable grazing, but I'm not clear on the sustainable farming or are you doing sustainable agriculture over on that side? We're not. So mm. agriculture is not compatible with the Maasai way of living. It's okay. happening, but it's something that it's relatively recent. And so if you look at what is the interest of the protection of the Maasai culture, it's definitely sustainable pastoralism mm -hmm. and not sustainable agriculture. I think what we are doing is having a bigger narrative, which is protect your nature and nature will pay you back in mm. terms of services. And so where MWCT is totally unique is that we are not just a conservation organization. We have employed teachers since day one. We support 25 schools. We have uh, the only doctor in the ecosystem helping with running the health programs. I don't know if you are familiar with Paul Farmer, who just recently just died, is yeah. one of my heroes. Paul Farmer trained our health team in Rwanda, where he was involved with Partners in Health, and the idea of bringing health services to the Maasai community, information to the women, family planning, awareness on a number of things, including uterus cancer, etc., very new and, and very important. So I think this community has always been exposed to that approach of MWCT having three tiers of programs, conservation, education, and health. And now we are simply doing the same thing, saying, hey, protect this forest and these benefits of having schools with classrooms, desks, books. In, in one particularly, there is a beautiful, incredible library and teachers and supporting staff and supporting five dispensaries, having a laboratory where we do analysis to check what you have. Mm -hmm. This is all coming by protecting the environment. And so we simply had to say, hey, it's not just about not killing giraffe or zebra or lion. Is actually protecting the forest. Right. Then there are more active actions, fire prevention, or ranges monitoring for fire, or ranges monitoring that nobody cuts down trees for logging them, or sandalwood, for example, to extract the roots that they get sold into the market. And so there are all those components, but it's almost, I would say, 10% of what we do, 90% of what we do is sharing benefits with the community and say, these are your conservation benefits that comes from having a viable forest. Mm -hmm. Protect it. Then if you take it to the further step, there are scholarship at secondary level. And mm -hmm. then there are bursaries to go to university. So on the education side, conservation dividends are really impacting thousands of people. There's a tendency now among people who are coming into this and they're saying, 
why would a conservation group do a red project? It's not like they're going to destroy the forest. How can I explain it? It's like the forest is going all over the world. And so the criticism of saying, why are we paying for these forests? We're paying for these forests because if you look at other places all over the planet, forests are going. But if we want to remain within Kenya, look, Tanzania was arguing with Kenya that Kenya was using the Mara River in an unsustainable way and the river was not arriving in Tanzania anymore. Mm -hmm. It wasn't Kenyans that were using it in an unsustainable way. The source of the river was completely destroyed because mm -hmm. the Mao Forest is now 20% of what was 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. so we're not inventing that if you don't do something, the Chulu, who provides water to Mombasa, arguably about 7 million people depends on that pipeline that is coming from Zima Spring because it serves all the communities from Mzima to Mombasa, would remain without water if that forest was gone. What would be the impact of the rainfall in the region and what would be the impact on the wildlife, on the livestock? So you're blind if you don't see that this critical forest is so economically, socially important that needs further investment. Carbon projects is not enough. We need yeah. to bring water payment uh, ecosystem services and we need to charge for that water that goes to Mombasa. And so uh, what we are doing is inadequate, is not enough. It was a crisis because you cannot keep going to people and say, hey, help me out. I need your donation. We need to find mechanisms that are self-financing a sustainable use of natural resources. I don't even want to use the word conservation. We don't have to conserve. We have to use sustainably. For me, nature needs to pay off. It's not about tree hugging. It's not nothing to do that. Let's remove the emotion and say, all right, if in 40 years that forest is gone, what are the consequences? Yeah. It will impact millions of lives in a terrible way. And the cost of protecting it is peanuts compared to the values that we go we get from it. Yeah. You actually went right where I wanted to go, which was the, the pipeline and watershed services, because there, there, is no, there, there are no other ecosystem payments right now other than carbon, right? That's it. And tourism, in a way, and the tourism. way that we use it. Not elsewhere. Tourism in other places is not really doing anything. But for us, the student camp that we have, benefits are for the trust. Camp Yakanzi, benefits are for the trust. We are setting up this new company that will do tourism investment as a B corporation with all the benefits going to the trust. So. Oh. Tourism is going to be uh, a big player for payment for ecosystem services in Kenya through us, and it needs to be done more, better, and by more people. Is it possible to shift towards agroforestry here, or could this not handle this? It doesn't really apply here. It could be a future tool, because the moment we have never approached agroforestry because we didn't want to be the driver of subdivision. Because in order to have that kind of projects, you really need to have land that is not owned by everybody, but is owned by somebody. Mm -hmm. And so we need to have individually owned plot or collectively owned in a way that makes a group happy that is happening and that the land is used for that purpose. So along the Olturesh River that cross Kuku, there is definitely room for sustainable agroforestry. There is this Melia volcansis, a very interesting endemic tree that is similar to mahogany. It gives a good crop after seven years, and you can take half of the trees uh, at seven and then the other half at 15, and the yield is apparently similar to the one of a tomato field. Okay. Is it worth looking into it and protecting the riverine forest and the river stream? Absolutely. Is mm -hmm. it something we will look into it? 
100% once the Maasai community will have decided that land will be owned by individual and we can engage them and, and trying to bring that home. Do you, do you have anything you wanted to add in while we're sitting here or anything that... I think what frustrates me is once we accept that if you are a carbon emitter, you need to do something about it and you set your footprint, there are industries that are fundamental for economic development. I'm an economist. I am not just the tree hugger, as I said. It's not going to work. We cannot go back to the horses and the horse carriage. We need to be traveling. Airline needs to fly. If you want to have the migration between the Mazaymara and the Serengeti, you need visitors and you need airplanes mm. that meet carbon. And you need those airlines to right. buy carbon credits because they cannot reduce their emission. And so RED is a fantastic tool for addressing those emissions that by default cannot be limited. Yes, maybe one day we mm. will have a small range uh, electric airplane. It's already happening as we talk. But my small range, I'm talking international flight from one nation to the other. That's not going to happen in five years, but maybe in 10. Mm. Intercontinental electric flying, I don't think I will see it in my lifetime, but eventually will happen. And so it's a matter of covering this gap now and making sure that these forests are protected, as simple as that. Luca Belpietro closing out this episode of Bionic Planet, the first of at least two episodes from the Chulu Hills of southern Kenya. In our next episode, we'll meet the beekeepers, tree planters, and forest rangers who make the project work and hear what they say about how it works and how it's progressing. I'll have that one up in a few weeks. Until then, I'm Steve Zwick, back from Kenya, now in Chicago. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.